Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kortz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you all are safe and well. Well, I hope this finds you all enjoying your holiday season and you're able to safely spend it with the ones you love. We've been home for the better part of a month now and it has been some great family time for me. Uh, The band's heading out in a few days for a New Year's run and so far 2022 is shaping up to be as close to a normal touring schedule as we've had in a couple years. The schedule will be like normal, but we'll still be following our protocols to make sure everybody stays safe out there. And I'm hoping it stays safe, but with the state of the pandemic right now, that could change at any moment. So please, I urge everyone to do their part in helping us get out of this and get back to safely doing all the things that we love. Uh, If you remember a few episodes back, I was planning on having Al Schneer from Mo, but we had to reschedule due to an unfortunate medical emergency in the Mo family. But we were able to get it done earlier this week, and I am happy to welcome Al to the program today. You will not meet a nicer guy out there, and I think you will agree after you hear our conversation. Also joining me today is Jonathan Sherrod of the band Aardvark, who are based in the Bay Area. So as always, I'm glad you're here, and before we get to the first segment, I humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, and with this you get exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all your proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net, and wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. All right, so let's get to the episode. Here we go. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and today we honor Sonny Boy Williamson. John Lee Sonny Boy Williamson was born in March of 1914 in Jackson, Tennessee. He's been called the father of the modern blues harp for incorporating the harmonica into the country blues style, leading to numerous artists doing the same. Williamson first recorded in 1937 for Bluebird Records, and his very first recording, Good Morning Schoolgirl, is the one we feature today. 
He taught himself to play harmonica as a teenager, and by his late teens was touring the Depression-era South, and fusing the harp with the country blues, he originated a new style with the harp as the lead instrument. He was popular among black audiences throughout the southern United States and Midwest, and his name was synonymous with blues harmonica for the next decade. In 1937, Williams moved to Chicago, where he had quickly established himself, and his style became the norm. He cut many albums in the 1940s and had a string of blues hits that influenced many others. He was the most influential blues harmonica player of his generation, but was also an important influence on non-harp players as well, including the legendary Muddy Waters who performed with Williamson in the mid-1940s. Waters, along with Jimmy Rogers and others, cemented his legacy by recording many of Williamson's tunes. Based out of Chicago, he recorded prolifically both as a bandleader and a sideman over the course of his career. On June 1, 1948, during the peak of his career, Sonny Boy Williamson was killed in a robbery on Chicago's South Side as he walked home from a performance. There's been some confusion over the years about his name, as another artist, Rice Miller, used the same name in the 40s and 50s, supposedly trying to use it uh, to gain popularity and pass himself off as the original. So now they forever are referred to as Sonny Boy 1 and Sonny Boy 2. Williamson recorded today's tune as Good Morning Schoolgirl, but subsequent artists, including Muddy Waters, Lightning Hopkins, The Yardbirds, and of course The Grateful Dead, recorded it as Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. The Dead first performed it early on in 1966, and it was a perfect song for Pigpen, who undoubtedly brought it to the band. It was a regular part of the rotation, never going more than a few shows without being played from 1966 to 70. And although they did play a version of it a handful of times in 1995, this was a Pigpen song through and through. Rough and tumble vocals, numerous harmonica solos, and dynamics that ran from a whisper to a scream made this a tune that really showed you all that Pigpen had to offer. So here is Sonny Boy Williamson 1 and his original 1937 version of Good Morning Schoolgirl. Buy me 
I'd like to take a minute and tell you about Beth Koritz. She's a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she has been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do, increase your confidence by activating your inner powers, and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passions, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth Koritz. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page at themusicplaystheband.net. Beth is looking forward to supporting you on your journey. For today's segment of There is a Grateful Dead cover band and every time we head back out to the Bay Area where there's a lot of Grateful Dead music happening and we talk with Jonathan Sherrod, also known as Skippy, of the local band Aardvark. Okay, so I am here today with Jonathan Sherrod, also known as Skippy, from the band Aardvark, and he is a bass player in a band Aardvark out in San Francisco. How are you doing today? Hi, Rob. I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for asking. Um, great, great to have you on here. And what is it about bass players being named Skip? Because the bass player in Dark Star is also named Skip. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but uh, I I was a little annoyed when I was like, oh, that guy's named Skip, too. And then I heard him heard him play and I'm like, it's all right. He's, he's, he's OK. He's OK in my book. <laughs> he passes the Skip test. Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. Well, Aardvark, you're based in what part of the Bay Area are you all based? So, so we're in uh, Redwood City, which is the peninsula. Um, so we're you know, between San Francisco and Santa Cruz, right. I would say San Jose, but San, I spend a lot of time in Santa Cruz and we play there more often than San Francisco. So yeah, Peninsula. Gotcha. Um, tell me, let's just start off Aardvark. Where's the name come from? <laughs> right. I think um, there was a time when I was late to rehearsal. That's never happened except that one time. And uh, I said, somebody's like, well, why are you late? And I was like, oh, I was walking my Aardvark. And you know, later we were like, well, what are we going to call this band? We, I don't think we had a name at that point. We were tossing around some dead related band names and somebody in the band, I think it was Greg Gavalakis said, you know, I don't think we should have a, a Grateful Dead related band name. And so we ended up going with Aardvark, which we just joked, like, we'll be first in the phone book, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> AA, sure. Man. Right. That's awesome. And now we hope hope to have fans that don't, you know, that don't even know what a phone book is now, you know, these days, that's a good point. I can't remember the last time one was delivered to my front door. Um, can you give me a brief rundown on your history? How long you've been around, how you got started? So it's been about, uh, 10 years or so that we've been playing together. And, um, it, Greg Gavalakis, the lead guitar player and I knew each other on the East coast. I used to play back there in a band called liquid squid. And, and one of the band members was a, a friend of his and he would come out and hear us and he was, we had jammed and he pretty good guitar player. I recognized, you know, even back then. And uh, we both moved out here to the West coast and uh, kept running into each other. And eventually I uh, signed on for this project with some woman who was doing like court torch songs and really depressing stuff. And, and just to try it out. And, uh, and she said, Oh, I'm already working with a guitar player and turned out to be my friend, Greg from the East coast from 30 years ago. And between songs, he would like rip off some Jerry licks and, and she had no idea what he was doing. And I was like, I see what you're doing. And eventually, uh, you know, we decided we would just start jamming together and invite some other deadhead musicians together just for fun. It, it turned into aardvark. So. so what's, what's the instrumentation then? Do you have two drummers? 
So we have just one drummer um, and we have keys, two guitar players and, and bass. Um, and so it's kind of a, an earlier dead kind of configuration. Uh, do you cover all parts of the catalog or do you, do you steer towards specific songs in yours? Um, we, we, we go all over. Um, we don't really do any Brent songs. I would say our keyboard player doesn't sing. Um, and, uh, it's interesting how, um, we have these discussions about roles, like, you know, Hey, if you play the Phil role, I'll play be the Bobby role in this song or whatever, but we don't, we don't adhere to that all the time. Like, well, it's a song by song thing. Like, for example, I sing box of rain. Um, but our guitar player, Paul Kelly, who uh, used to be in the travel agents and, uh, which turned into electric waistband and stuff. Um, uh, he, he likes to do Unbroken Chain. So I'm like, yeah, you do Unbroken Chain. So, you know, it's a guitar player singing that. Um, and then I'll sing some Jerry songs, you know, like Crazy Fingers or something like that. Um, so we, we mix it up that way. Uh, it's not, we don't, we don't have strict roles in the band. Um, and so whoever does, you know, the, the guitar players choose. So who's doing lead? Uh, on this song and rhythm and things like that. As far as interpreting and performing the music, do you take a specific approach to it when you tackle a tune? Well, we'll, um, we'll try to find a good reference version and there's plenty to pick from. And uh, so um, Ben Holland, the keyboard player turned me onto this website, heady version where people have voted different versions of songs, live versions of dead tunes. Really? And, uh, and so that's a, a place to start looking for, you know, versions that people think are really good of certain songs. I've never heard of that. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, we'll find uh, live versions and we'll talk about, you know, differences in tunes uh, over the years. Like, you know, um, it's always interesting. Like this weekend, I'll play, um, you know, Help Slip Frank uh, with Matt Hartle. He's one of the other musicians in the area. And uh and, you know, there's some differences that, you know, if you look into the, the um, without a net version, that's different from a lot of the other live versions like that happened earlier. And uh, when someone says, oh, we're going to play that, it's like, wait, which version? Right, <laughs> right. You're especially well aware Slipknot, of that. Especially Slipknot, because it's so intricate. And if you aren't in, in, in one version, that earliest version, there's a bar of nine in the middle there. Um, right. <laughs> and if, if someone else is playing in the version, it's a bar eight, it's going to be a mess. So I totally understand what you're talking right, about. Right. right. Exactly. And it's not always, you know, we don't have to always be exactly the same as some version, um, but we do talk about it and figure out what we're going to do. You're, I mean, you're so you're based in, I mean, you guys perform in, in the heart of the Grateful Dead world out there in, in, in the Bay, Mecca, mm -hmm. if you will, for the Deadheads. There are so many players out there and there's so many options when it comes to dead music out there. So do you all feel like you fill a certain niche within the community? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Every, every group is different. And, uh, you know, we got like Stu Allen and we got Matt Hartle and people talk about, well, what, you know, and, and a lot of other great guitar players around here and, uh, and they're all different. And, and it's, that's one of the, the joys of, uh, having a community of, of diversity. Right. So even though, you know, everybody's kind of playing a lot of the same material, it's all different because the personalities are different and the styles of, you know, of each player is different. Um, it's kind of like uh, how much improvisation do you do um, versus uh, just trying to, to follow a specific version that, that came before you. Um, the improvisation is going to make it more unique 
um, because everybody's going to do it a little different. And and of course, you know, the kind of music we do it differently every time to some extent, which I'm right. sure you totally understand. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we play in certain venues. We'll, you know, we, we often, we had a regular gig every month in uh, uh, on the peninsula and, you know, we built up an, a following there. And then a lot of those people will come to Santa Cruz to see us or the coast, or we have a different group at the coast that when we go play there, that those people come out. Um, and, uh, it's, it's just, it's fun. And, uh, you know, every, every band has their crowd has a lot of overlap too. What, what is it? I mean, I talked to, to guys from bands all over the country and by and large, it's the same story to a degree where we have long time regulars. We turn people on that never knew the dead. We might have college students in our, in the market we're in. What is it about this music? that create in your mind that creates this subculture, this community. What is it? Why, why does it happen? Mm, wow. That's a question. Oh, neat. Um, hmm. You know, I'd, I, I'm thinking of a comfortable shoe for some reason. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the, the songs, you know, a lot of the songs are just total classics that, that, uh, that become an instant thing. It's like, Oh, that's what my grandfather would sing to me or what. I mean, it sounds like that. I'm not saying that my grandfather ever sang a grateful dead song to me, but um, the songs like that, that, that have that familiarity. And uh, I think that that familiarity um, draws people in and makes them feel kind of at home in a way. Yeah, but I think I feel like it's a lot of it's the community. It's it's for some reason the music attracts the people and then the people interact with each other and and make a great community. And that's to me, you know, a big part of it. And right on, I think a big part of it for people too. And so I mean, I'm sure it's true for all bands. Um, but it's interesting how they they all have a diff, different kinds of people in a way, you know, different yeah. kinds of fans. Well, I got to thank you guys, you know, for keeping it live out there. I mean, again, you're in Mecca and there's so many Grateful Dead lovers out there and there's so many uh, musicians for them to choose from. And it's, it's great you're, you're doing your part kind of in the southern part of the Bay Area mm-hmm. to, to keep it alive. And, and thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, man. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rob. Pleasure to talk to you. Right on. That is, I'm going to say Jonathan Sherrod, but you all would know him as Skippy, the bass player from Aardvark. Great to have you on. Thank you very much. Great conversation and great sounding band. That's Aardvark you're hearing right now. Uh, There's lots more of that interview to be heard and much more when you support the podcast with a Patreon membership. You can become a patron with a monthly subscription for as little as $5 a month that includes expanded video versions of our segments, all of the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast, videos from home and on the road, including some old DSO footage, and much, much more. 
You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal, and part of every contribution goes to the Rex Foundation. So please support the cause. Learn more about the podcast and our sponsors, read the blog, or contact me through our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you might use. Thanks for your continued support and for helping spread the word about the podcast. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. Grateful Sweats' subtle song designs will strike a chord for heads who get it. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of cold weather gear, like hoodies, beanies, and of course sweatpants, as well as other grateful goodies with more than 30 designs, like Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, and my personal favorite, The Eyes of the World. Visit etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats, or get there from the sponsors page at our website. And right now, if you use the code THEMUSICPLAYS, you save 10% and receive a free pin. And don't miss the clearance section with items up to 80% off. So as soon as you're done listening to the podcast today, head on over to Grateful Sweats. My guest for our feature conversation today is Al Schneer, longtime guitarist for that jam band mainstay Mo. We had a great conversation and we touched on many topics. In fact, this is going to be one of the longer conversations that I've put out, but there was so much good stuff happening. We were enjoying ourselves so much. I found myself not wanting to cut this or not wanting to cut that. So uh, I left pretty much everything in there for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a conversation with Al Schneer. Okay, good morning, everybody. I am here today with Al Schneer. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for taking the time. We were supposed to get this in a couple weeks ago, and you all had to take a little break because everything that was going on with Chuck. I hope he's doing okay. Can you give us a little update? Um, I can. Uh, so Chuck is, uh, Chuck is heading home, which is, is great news. Um, he moved from, you know, from the hospital to a rehab facility and ultimately, uh, ultimately back home, which is just great news. So he'll be home for the holidays and he's making slow, steady progress. Um, he's starting to play a little bit of guitar and we all, chat daily uh which is wonderful and his his attitude and spirit has been incredible um i've never seen chuck so lighthearted and happy in in the you know 30 plus years we've been together in a band and it's just great to see that to see that sort of positivity coming coming forth from him um it's 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 been fantastic Oh, that's good to hear. I know that we've talked about it in the band and myself, and I'm sure our listeners are thinking about him. And that's good news. I saw he tweeted yesterday and let everybody know he's getting better. So that's good stuff, man. And Um, it's been been a lot of positivity coming coming back his way for for sure. As you know, it's uh, the music community is is a is a big one and a strong one. And and that goes a real long way. And he's he's feeling all of that. So it's much appreciated. It does. They actually, they care about us. You know, they want, they want us to have to make music for them. So they care about us. It's a great feeling. That's right. Yeah. Right on, man. Uh, you grew up, you grew up in upstate New York. You still live up there, right? That's correct. So can you tell us just uh, the, the, the short version if you want, but uh, kind of a little bit about your musical journey growing up? Um. So, you know, well, I mean, if, I want to go back to the beginning, you know, it started with started with a clock radio and listening to American Top 40 and, you know, a little suitcase turntable, which which I still have, actually, a little plastic GE turntable suitcase thing that I would play 45s on. Um, 
And, but I was, I was, my sister and I were like obsessed with the radio at that point. And so we'd listen to all of the top 40 stuff when we were kids. And, and eventually, you know, I crossed over to FM and we had a great classic rock station here. And it was in that era of the seventies when you had an independent classic rock station where they cultivated that culture of, of classic rock. And before it was classic rock, it was just rock. You know what I mean? And they were playing deep cuts because they, they were fans and, and it was great. And so if somebody like, I don't know, let's just say like Peter Gabriel was coming to town, you know, they hyped that concert for six months before Peter Gabriel came to town. And like, you just listened to Genesis and Peter Gabriel and all this stuff around the clock. And like, I couldn't sleep for months until like the the concert finally came because, (laughs) you know, they were responsible for that. Like, and it's because they were fans about it too, you know, and it's like back in the day when you used to have to like, you know, sleep out for concert tickets at Ticketron and (laughs) get your line ticket, man. Yeah, it was, it was great though. You know, it was, it was fun growing up, you know, as a fan of a thing. It's like being a sports fan, you know, and they, they made it like that, that exciting. That's, that's not how old you, it sounds like you're probably about the same age as me. I'm 53. I'm 53. Yeah. yeah there I'm you go. 50. So, cause I'm, yep. this all sounds very familiar. <laughs> yep. And so, and then at, at some point, you know, I kind of went from that, you know, that sort of classic rock mindset to, uh, uh, you know, to wondering what the hell the Grateful Dead was because, you know, all the older kids, you know, had it painted on the back of their jean jackets or whatever. You'd see the stickers on their vans and, you know, and the artwork is just fantastic and so inviting to to a young teenager. <laughs> and and the thing is, like at the time, you know, I'm listening to everything from like Rush and Black Sabbath and all this, you know, much probably harder rock and definitely harder rock. And 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 their artwork you know, kind of led me to believe, oh, well, you know, a band called the Grateful Dead with skeletons and all of this stuff must be pretty much like Black Sabbath or something, something along those lines. That's what I, that's what I expected <laughs> and did not, did not get at all. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you, uh, are you playing an axe or a piano or if you started playing an instrument at that point? Uh, yeah, I, I, I started piano as a, as a young kid uh, when I was like three or four. And then played trumpet in school band and then um and then picked up guitar when i was 12 or 13 begging to play guitar for years because <laughs> you start hearing all this music it's all guitar based i gotta be that guy well yeah that's the thing i just i mean i wanted to be you know rick nielsen from cheap trick or you know ace freely you know and i'm jumping around in my bedroom playing a tennis racket <laughs> you mentioned peter gabriel and you mentioned how you started to hear the dead but as you're starting to play guitar, you're 12 years old, 13, picking up an axe. Who were some of those early influences, as it, not only as a band, but as a guitar player for you? Um, I mean, early on, I mean, in, interestingly, Neil Young was one of the, the first people that, that, uh, that I gravitated towards. Um, Is this the acoustic or the electric stuff? Uh, more of the electric stuff, more crazy horse. Crazy horse, Because yeah. uh, it was right around the time that... Um, it was just after Russ Never Sleeps had come out. So the live Rust album had come out. And so now you've got these 12-year-old kids with access to that music. But it was basically like the quintessential garage band and super accessible. And 
And I don't know, I, I, I think it was like an older brother. It must've been an older brother, somebody's older brother. I mean, how is like a 12 or 13 year old, do you discover like, you know, Neil Young and Crazy Horse? Because it, I mean, again, it, it, I'm sure they were playing it on this classic rock station, but it doesn't normally come across your, your radar like at that age. But we all kind of fell in with it. And there was a bunch of us that were all listening to it, but it was easy to play. It was also easy to sing because our voices had changed. So I started playing in a band at 13 and we just, we did a ton of Neil Young covers at that point. And it was just two guitars and a drummer. And we just, we would just play all of that stuff off a of live rust and we just play it all day long, just loud and distorted and drive our parents crazy. And it was great. Grunge it out, man. That's, I mean, that yeah. is what that, that's early grunge, you know, that's the precursor it to is. It right there. Yeah. Um, it is you know you play hey hey my my for you know a half hour in the basement it was great my mother hated that song <laughs> we'd be driving to school it's the same same period you know and it's on the radio at that time and right oh that guy with the crackly voice singing about johnny rotten and she would just she just <laughs> every time want to turn that turn that song off no, you gotta leave right. it you gotta leave it this is good yeah like, what's a 12 year old no no it's not mm-hmm. um it's funny like as you you know, as you start sort of developing these things, you know, as a young musician and you're figuring it out, you know, I was I was singing these songs in the band, but then we, you know, we'd shift over and we'd maybe play, you know, a song by the Eagles or, you know, some something else that was popular at the time. But the only thing I knew was like my my Neil Young voice. And my friend would say, like, stop agony singing. You sound like you're in agony all of the time. <laughs> I was just singing like in my Neil Young voice for everything. <laughs> Peaceful, it was easy feeling in the Neil Young yeah. voice. Yeah. <laughs> who else besides him was, who else was, uh, not again, not just bands, but as players, were there other guys right then besides Neil Young, Rick Nielsen? I mean, of course. I mean, Eddie Van Halen, you know, changed my world when, when those first Van Halen records came out. Um, one of the first cassette tapes that I, a pre-recorded cassette tape I bought was the first Van Halen album. And and I remember just wearing that thing out, with, you know, my boom box in the summertime and walk around and listen to that over and over and over and just flip the tape and flip the tape. And I mean, it was incredible. And I'd never heard anything like it before or since, really. Yeah. I mean, he changed, he changed guitar and, and it was great because it was still really organic. You know, it wasn't, it still is. It's not, it's not foreign in this way he just took the stuff that everybody else was doing and and was like michael jordan at it or something you know what i mean it was just like something you'd never seen before and it was inc- it was incredible to hear and watch and all of it and we were we were big fans um, yeah and yeah that whole david lee roth era you know and it, it it's it was so um it was so so infectious especially again for like young teenage boys it's perfect i from it was like seventh grade diver down came out and that's when when i got my my van halen fix was was right around then um do you remember you said you talked about seeing the stickers and the cool artwork and the and the the drawings on the back of the denim jackets and all that do you remember when you actually first heard the dead um I, you know, I don't remember the, the the first time somebody put it on. I was like, oh, you know, what's this? Um, it was it was around a lot. So we had a in our 
um, in our junior high, we had this, this art teacher who was, who was also a guitar player. He also ran a program called Guitar Club. Um, and there was also a, a boombox in the art room that was just on all of the time. So a lot of those same kids were there and you, you could play whatever music you wanted in there. So it was, it was on in the art room a lot of the time as kids were sort of, you know, crafting their own, again, painting their jean jackets or like making these like sort of Grateful Dead things. And so I heard a lot of it then, you know, sort of mixed in with Jethro Tull and everything else that was getting played and Aerosmith and right. everything else that was sort of getting played at the time. Um, but, you know, that meant that I was hearing you know, the hits I was hearing, you know, trucking and sugar mag and, you know, those kinds of songs. And, and it, it just fit, you know, they were just, they were just classic rock songs at the time, you know? Um, so the thing, the thing that really took me, I guess, was the first time that I saw them versus, versus that experience. Yeah. When, do, yeah. what was it as you start to, had you started listening to the catalog a little more before you saw them or was it just, you knew those three songs, those four songs, the, 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 the high, the, the hits, if you will. Uh, yeah, I, no, I definitely did. Cause once I knew that we were going and once we, again, because it's that same thing that I was sort of explaining before, like, you know, once, once they announced that they were, they were coming to Syracuse, you know, the tickets were going to go on sale in three months. We spent three months listening to the band. And then we got the tickets and there was three more months before the show. So we just, I mean, we spent six months just studying the Grateful Dead and listening to all that we could and, you know, and trying to be as cool as we could there. <laughs> Doing all the homework, <laughs> being ready. Right. So that, so during that period, this is when you're, you're, you're really finding out about this music. What, what is it? What grabbed you, man? What, what drew you into it? Well, so like I said, I was listening to Neil Young at the time already, right? And somebody had gifted me a Bob Dylan record when I was like 12 years old. When I was, when I was that age, all I wanted for like my birthday presents was just albums. It's like all you do, I was just building an album collection. Just give me albums. And somebody gave me Bob Dylan's greatest hits. And I was like, really? And I was like, I wouldn't have chosen that. And it was like one of the greatest gifts somebody could have given me. I had no idea at the time. And I played the shit out of that. And beyond that, we're, you know, we're striking distance from Hamilton College, which had a great radio station at the time. So in addition to a dead show, they also had an amazing folk show that came on. I can't remember if it was just before or just after the dead show. And they were playing stuff like David Bromberg and um, Hot Tuna and uh, Grisman and all of this other stuff that I was hearing at a young age, I was like 12, 13 years old, et cetera. And so I was getting all of this American roots music at like a super young age. And I was, I was really interested in the music. I loved all of it. I loved all of the acoustic stuff and all of the, the roots music. And then to hear the Grateful Dead, like I immediately identified that it was all coming from the same place. And then you started to hear some of the same songs. You're like, right. Oh, like these guys played that song or this, this is that song, but it has a different name. And, and I started like connecting all of those dots when I was, when I was a teenager. And it was like, that was the part that I became really fascinated with. I'm like, they're just playing all of these like American folk songs, but then they did this really cool thing with it. Where it just, it sounds like the grateful dead. It doesn't sound like anything else. And, I was, I was in so, I was beyond intrigued by like, by all of it. I was like, I don't know, like, how the hell do you do that? Like, how do you, 
how do you take these songs, the traditional arranged by songs, and just make them make them dead songs? And like right. this is this is great. Like I want that. That's that's your first exposure, probably. Then all those other bands are playing tunes, and now you're listening to a band that's improvising, right? And, and taking it out, man. Yeah, that, that's that's eye opening stuff for sure. Right, especially at such a young age. You know, my 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 mind is wide open at this point, and and I got really really excited about all of it. So did you st- at that point then? So you're still playing in your in your garage bands at that point. Do you start playing Grateful Dead music? Do you start bringing Grateful Dead tunes into what you're doing? A little bit, you know, but so, you know, you figure out, you know, figure out how to play Friend of the Devil, you know, and, you know, a couple of the easy songs and start working your way through them. And that was back in the day when you had to go to the guitar store and buy the songbook or sit there with a record and, you know, put the needle back. And then, you know, we're trying to figure out the songs from the records um, or from a cassette tape and, you know, just using all the ear training that we could and actually figure them out on our own. And it was, it was great homework. Yeah. Um, No internet to help us. No, no cheating. No cheating. That's right. I have a a shelf full of a lot of the Neil Young, the Eagles, the dead, the Paul Simon right (laughs) over there, all those songbooks that I bought. Yeah. During those years when I thought I could play guitar and would learn how to move right. around a little. Same thing, yeah. man. Um, yeah. Are there particular songs or even further out, are there particular eras of the Grateful Dead that you really get off on more than others? Um, I love, I mean, I, I look, I love them all, honestly. It's it's hard to say. It's it, they're, they're like children, you know. It's hard to say that, like, you have a favorite one. Um, I, I do tend to gravitate towards like Europe 72 and that, that whole time frame, I just, they, they hit this stride that, that I really liked because it, it, it bridged a gap between, between their, their psychedelic years and their songwriting and arranging and all of the Americana stuff that they had brought in. And it was just like, it, it's all started to come together. They hadn't, quite crossed over to the 73 stuff where like all like more of the jazz started coming in and more of the fusion, but, but there's something about those songs from that era. And in particular, like all the Europe 72 recordings. And I I love the sound of it. I love the sound of the band then. And um, that's something that I really like, but I think my favorite era is, is 1976. They did a, they did a theater tour in the the spring and summer of 76 and and it's it's the whole band firing on all cylinders in like in their element like in the like in the perfect setting everything sounds so good like the sound of jerry's guitar like the, the whole band sounds great like they're playing and listening at this level that I feel like is unmatched in, in some, like they hit it they They peak, you know, at different times, you know, but, but at that time in 76, like there was, it was like a couple of months where it was just like, it was on fire the entire time. And the sound is incredible. There's something about the sound that I really like about them. They play places like the cat, you know, and, right. um, and they were playing those rooms. And I think there's something, there's something I really like about that band in those, those rooms where it's very organic they're mixing themselves on stage and it just sounds right. They're playing together and they had just come off of 
all of the songwriting in 75 and they were ready to play again. And they were just, just getting up and running. And it was before sort of all the excesses of the, the coming years. And so it was like this perfect storm. And that, like, that's my favorite era. <laughs> they're also coming off a break. So they're, they're fresh and they're revitalized. Well, and yeah. Mickey's just coming back to the band and a ton of those songs that they're playing right there, even the ones that they're writing there in 75, but the ones that are writing in 72, 73, 74, he's never played them before. Right. So it's a fresh element. You know, here's songs we've been playing for a couple of years, but a different instrumentation now. That's right. Yeah. And that's what I meant by the whole band too. And I, I like 72 just because like, like I said, the sound quality is great and the playing is really great, but, but there's something, you know, and I know there's, there's a lot of discussion that comes up about, you know, having Mickey there and not there. And, um, and it's nice because it's clean, but there's also something missing about the tribal element that he brings in this, this other other otherness that he brings to the band and that comes back in 76 and they retain that organic quality that they had in the early to mid seventies in 76 before it sort of like starts spitting out, you know, before, before they start playing disco and before, you know, and before they lose Keith and, you know, there's all these other things, but like, like that's, that's why I love that era. That's awesome. The direct influence of Jerry and or Bobby, either one, on your playing. They're two really distinct styles. They don't, they don't play anything like each other. Do you? What do you take from either of them as far as into your guitar playing? And who who do you gravitate towards more, if you do? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't... I don't know. I mean, I would say probably Jerry just because he's more dominant. Um, and then I love, I love his solo work. I love the Garcia band. I like a lot of that stuff. It really, it really resonates with me. And again, we could have a whole conversation just about the very uh, various Garcia bands and, right. um, and those lineups. But um so I would say maybe that, although I'm not like, I've never, I've never done my homework and I've never, uh, I've never tried to try to figure that out. Um, because I just, I, I love it so much. And, uh, and I don't feel like, I don't feel like I need to, to learn his things necessarily for, to, inform my own playing because I listen to it so much. I feel like I've, I've, I've like digested it. I've internalized it like my entire life, you know, um, that there's something, something else that, that I sort of draw from it. And I think it's more about the, maybe the perspective or the approach. Um, and that's, there's that, but I think there's also a tonality that, that I really like, um, and, and, and I'll just, you know, sort of park it there, I guess, when, you know, when it comes to, to Jerry and his playing, um, the, the, the one other thing I would add to those, you know, kind of going back to what I said about the, the catalog or the songbook, and that's something that has been a huge influence on me is having this fascination with American roots music and, and again, like just internalizing that somehow. And it's, it's something that, 
has inspired me since I was a teenager and continues to, to this day. And I could see like really digging deep, deeply into in the coming years. Uh, it's something I would like to, I mean, I want a doctorate in that. Like I want to just spend my time digging down into those songs and, um, I, I just, I love that so much. I love the history of it all. I love the oral history of it all. Um, and when it comes to Bobby, you know, the thing that I would, I would say is I, I, I love, I love his songwriting and I love his choices that he makes, like the composition and the choices that he makes are and that. And in a lot of ways, I think is also informed some of my playing and writing too. There are things that I can bring to our band, which gets pretty dense at times. And whether knowingly or unwittingly, you know, I, again, I've surely have internalized this over, you know, how many years of of listening to their music um, just to know which choices to make or the kind of chord voicings that I just want to hear in my head. and. You know, and they come, they come from that, that place. Um, he is a, he, he still surprises me to this day. You know, when I hear his playing or when I have to dig down in a song, something that I'm learning and I have to learn his part. And I never realized that it was this thing. I mean, he's, he's freaking brilliant. He is yeah. a genius when it comes to songwriting and he does these things with like these moving chords and parts and voicings and whatever. And it gets, it gets overlooked a lot of times. I wouldn't say it gets lost in the mix, but it's just, it's there. And it's such an integral part of the song. Yeah. And, and it's like a lot of times it's the keystone for like a whole section and you don't realize it. Um, and until you, until you find it and you're like, right. Oh boy. Oh boy, that's that's the glue for that whole thing, and it was Bobby the whole time. Have you heard some of these people put out there these isolated tracks where it's just Bobby from a live yeah. version or something? Yeah, what it's otherworldly what he's doing. Nobody plays like that. No, no, and, that's the thing. But it's and it's all informed by by that band. You know, it's the I think all of it. You know, it's it's you can say the same about Phil's bass playing or. Or Mickey's drumming, or sure. they all would have been but, such radically different musicians in other bands. Exactly, <laughs> this would not work. But like the Bobby stuff on on some of the tracks you hear, the space is in such odd spots from where oh, yeah. a traditional rhythm guitar player might put it. Yet it is still like what you mentioned. It's still the glue. And and the same thing could be said for his tone. You know, if you isolate his tone, you know, and it has that sort of very like you know glassy kind of ice icy it's very i don't know it's a weird like cold it's it's not at all a traditional guitar sound or what people strive for however in the context of that band that's the exact sound that like bob weir needs to have in that band and it's perfect right right speaking of sounds i I read that uh i know you you and jeff and some of the other guys around have been lucky enough to play jerry's axes from time to time and i read somewhere that you said the travis bean is your favorite out of those is that true oh yeah um <laughs> absolutely and again it's 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 well so there 
And, and it's, but I, I like the one with the humbuckers. And again, this is, and again, it's the one that he was using in 76 before he switched over to the other one. So uh, high end, man. When Jeff has that, and now Jeff has his own beans for me, they are just, they're so, oh, it's ear piercing for me. Well, it, and it depends. So he, there's the one with the humbuckers though, that he only played for a couple of months before he switched over to the popular one that everybody knows. The That's one with the one the single with the sticker on it. Right. Yeah. And, and I agree. Like, I don't like the one that he played in 77 is, is, has a lot of high end to it. I'm with yeah. you. The one that he played in 76 and he was playing through Mesa boogie amps. Like there's something about it. Like it sounds so much better. It sounds more like the SG that he was playing like in the late sixties, but there's a clarity to it. There's a bigger, there's something about it that, that I really liked. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's it, you know, good for you that you've been blessed to play those guitars, you know. That's that's amazing. Yeah. There's so many good people out there that have these guitars that are putting them in the players' hands. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like good good for them for for sharing that. You know, they're they're in a in a fortunate position where they can afford to collect them and but but rather than put them under glass, they want to see them out there and, and getting shared with with everyone with the 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 fans and musicians and 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 keep keep them out there and that's that's the best thing for those instruments too is they need to be played for sure you know, it's like like an old car like you can't let it sit like they need to be driven <laughs> that's what i love the analogy um let's talk about mo for a minute um the, the band formed in buffalo you were not an original member but, but when you heard the band i read this as well when you heard the band you said that's the type of band i want to be in <laughs> that's true um, yeah was it the improvisation and the dead influence that made you say that what was it that said this is it oh no they didn't they weren't improvising or any of that stuff at at the time um i heard a demo cassette that they had made and there was like three or four songs on it and at the time kind of sounded more like a little bit more like the red hot chili peppers or something like that there was this very sort of like late 80s early 90s kind of like like alternative rock or funk sort of sound to it and i'm like this is great and at the time i was playing in a band that was like a dead band from you know from my college town and i was like i wanted to play in a band that was more like that that was doing something a little bit edgier that had you know just some different influences and and it wasn't until I started playing in the band that we started, you know, bringing in these other influences and started stretching things out and adding improv and, you know, yeah. So, so you're a dead fan at that time when you come in, uh, Vinny and I, who this is episode 27, you're on Vinny. I had him on like episode five or six and Vinny and I have sat not on a podcast and talked about the dead for days. Sure. Um, are, are you two are the dead fans in Mo? Are the other guys into it as well, or are you teaching them about it? Uh, a little of both, you know. Um, Rob and Chuck like the Grateful Dead and have things about the band that they like and appreciate, and have seen them. And obviously, we've all played with them in various formations over the years. Um, they and I think both. I, I, in fact, I think. I think we all went to one of the rich stadium shows together in like 90 or 91, as I recall, but, but they did not, they did not 
they were not fans like Vinny and I were. I mean, they, they didn't go through their entire yeah, um, developmental years in the 80s, you know, spending all of their time on that band. Um, um, Jim, on the other hand, has little or no, I wouldn't say tolerance. Uh, he's, he just doesn't appreciate it. <laughs> and just, he also doesn't get it. And we'll, you know, we'll say that readily. And I don't want to yeah. throw him under the bus, but he's not a fan. And... They said the same thing. You're not throwing him under the bus. Yeah. Uh, heard it before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and so much comes up, you know, where we'll be like, oh, well, you know, we have these opportunities to like, oh, let's do this thing. Let's cover the song, whatever. And every time he's like, you know, kind of like, what the hell? Like, why do we, it's like, no, like, can't, you know, let's, you know, and he always wants to do a Metallica song or something else. We're like, well, sure. We could do that too. But well, both let's have the lobster yeah. and the crab. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you meant you guys will play dead tunes on occasion, you know, and we're going to talk about playing with the members in a little while, but you guys will play, take a dead tune and play it on your own. When you do that, do you approach it in any particular manner? Or is it, let's just go for it and see what happens. Uh, Especially little, having one guy who doesn't really want to play it. Right. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, you know, sometimes we do just a straight up cover of a thing. Um We'll we'll play Deal from time to time, and it's a pretty straight version of Deal. It doesn't it doesn't sound any different than you know most other bands that cover Deal. Um, we play the other one. It sounds like Mo playing the other one. Um, the arrangement isn't different, but it's it sounds like our band doing it because it feels more like it's in our wheelhouse, and it's something the band can get behind. And so there could be a vibraphone solo in it. There could be uh, a heavier guitar solo that Chuck can take. And, you know, we could take it to places that feels a little bit more like mom. Awesome. Um, you know, and it'll still have that, you know, that whole, you know, still have the other one groove, still, you know, have that whole six, eight thing. And like, we'll be in the other one thing and you'll know and you know we'll do the verses and you know all of that but it feels more like mo um and then the like the the furthest end of the spectrum is rob came in one day and he said he said what do you think about doing west la fadeaway but like doing it totally different like let's actually do it so it sounds like us and he was like and he worked out this baseline for it where it's like this funk baseline for it and and he was like, I'm just going to play this for a little bit and you guys settle in with it. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, and it was great. And it was like a little bit more up-tempo. It's a very different feel and sound to it. Like until we started, probably until we started singing or actually playing through the chord changes, you wouldn't identify it as West LA Fadeaway. But then once you did, it was like, oh, this is, you know, it's, and it's a, like, it's super satisfying to me to play having heard and played West LA fade away, you know, a, sure. a million times, but then to get to do something like this, that like my band is also excited about doing because it's new and fresh to them. And, yeah. you know, we get different solo breaks in it and it feels more like something that we would do. Like that was, that was pretty, pretty good. And it, it was Rob's idea. I'm like, cool. Let's, let's reinvent it for us. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. And that, yeah. And that felt really good. Um, 
let's talk about songwriting for a minute. Every, everybody in the band brings songs to the table, correct? Um, yes. For you, and, and including you, obviously, for you in particular, and we do touched on it a little bit, but I want to go a little deeper. Does uh, Hunter and Barlow, they obviously, they seep into your consciousness, especially probably for someone like you who studies that songbook and, and it's so dear to them. Does one of them appeal to you more than the other? Do you connect with one of them and have it seep into your songwriting more, more than the other? I know I'm not trying to pit them against each other. Right. Um, I'm just talking about for your emotion, you know, for a lot of people, it's an emotional thing, you know? Yeah. That, this guy touches my heartstrings. Just the songs of this one touches my heartstrings. Um, well, you know what? I think that, that Robert Hunter touches my heartstrings. Um, I mean, the songs that Robert Hunter wrote are, those are the ones, those are the ones that make me cry. Those are the ones that like, I mean, Robert Hunter wrote, wrote some of like, like a lot of my favorite songs and, um, I, I like, I, I can't, I, like, I can't believe some of the songs that he wrote. Um, on the other hand, Barlow, Barlow's songs, while they may not touch my heartstrings, like he wrote, he writes, like, there's something about his songs. Like I love his storytelling and the thing that he brings to the table and he 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 does the storytelling thing in in a poetic way almost like almost in the same way like the imagery that he brings to it is very like in in the same way that somebody like Ken Kesey will like he brings this imagery to it that it paints a picture without saying saying exactly what he means but he puts you in a place and and it's and like and that like a, like his songs give me chills, and Robert Hunter's songs make me cry. <laughs> that's that's perfect, man. That's perfect, and that, yeah. that's all that's all on a lyrical level because they're they're writing the words, um, right? But what about like on a melodic and harmonic level? Are there things that you heard in the dead? You know, whatever it is, a little chord progression or a little walk down, things that got you off so much that you wanted to find a way to somehow incorporate at least a variation of that into your writing um i'm i i wouldn't say specifically but but there are things you know there there are definitely things you know when i think of when i think of the cowboy songs when i think of and it it could be anything from i know you writer to Cassidy or Jack Straw or those songs again, like they speak to me in a way. And like, I love those kinds of songs and I tend to write those kinds of songs. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about that. Those, those voicings and that musicality that I like. And, and I tend to write songs like that, but there's also these other songs that I like the ones that are, have this uh there's, there's the ones that almost to me sound like they come more from from like from a place that where like the beatles were writing songs and they'll almost be more like the garcia hunter songs at times you know and the the chord progressions and voicings are a little bit more like that and i can't think of a good example of one um but there's something that i like about those songs too and they're not necessarily 
I don't mean the ballads, but I mean like the, like there's these mid-tempo songs that I really like and the way the chords move. And then you'll have, again, you sort of have like these descending figures in them or other things. And it's like, it's, it's so much in my blood at this point would, that I can't. one of those be like, like Rambo on Rose? Would that be from that era, from that part of the, that you're talking about? Ramble on, so Ramble on Rose, I, you know, I kind of fit. So I sort of put in between those two and that sort of that, and that sort of fits like right where, like, like where, where like Lee Von Helm and Rick Danko and the band live all day long. And that's where they'll like those two elements cross over. And the band is one of my favorite bands and like their, their songs again, like, like Ramble on Rose and Tennessee Jed. And like, there's a bunch of those songs that, are, are a lot like Ophelia to me. And they're just like these great, great songs that I don't have a name for, but they sound very like they come from this American roots place. And it's like they, those, those songs embody for embody it. I, I, I don't know what it is. And it's like, and I could, I could play those songs all day long and I want to, I want, I want to write them. I want to play them. I want to <laughs> sing them. I want to, I want to be in them. Like it just, it, it like brings me to my happy place. You were one of the bands that was a regular at the wetlands in, in the early to mid nineties. And along with these other bands, you're, you know, essentially bands that improvise. You're really creating what we now call the jam band movement. Granted, we had the dead and lots of improvisational bands before that, but this was a, a new movement, really. Did you guys have any idea that this was happening, even though this music you're playing, all the roots go back to the 60s and the Bay Area, but something new's coming out right there. I mean, something's happening at the wetlands at that point. Are you aware of it? Um, I guess I guess that we, you know, we were conscious of the fact that we were a part of that scene at the time. I don't think anyone had any idea that we would be here 25 years later <laughs> with you know subsequent generations of bands that have have you know been born out of out of that scene um you know we just felt lucky to be a part of the stream somehow just to just to be in it just to be a part of it and get to a point where you know, we went from the Nightingale on a Tuesday night to now headlining weekends at at the Wetlands, and and to be one of those bands to be like a household name at that place, this legendary club. It's like we we made it. We we could have been done at that point. Like right. we had sort of we had, we had reached all our goals. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was it what was it like as far as uh you know you guys are there and, and there's so many bands that are there at that time but what's and i've had quite a few members of those bands on what's the collaboration like between the bands who are in the scene there are you all playing together y'all hanging out together does everybody aware of what's going on absolutely and and it would just depend who was on the bill on any given night or who happened to be there on any given night but there was a lot of crossover and it was great and it was and it was it was a given the the backstage was tiny and there was enough room to kind of stash your backpacks and, you know, kind of stay. There was literally no place to be in there. It was, uh, and, and you got there on a, on a sold out night or a very full night. And there was no place to go. Um, and that just sort of lent itself to the, the atmosphere of that place of just being hot and sweaty and crowded and being on top of one another. And it felt great. Were you there on nights that you weren't on the bill? Would you go up and hang out? 
Oh, for, oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, it would depend who was who was playing. But, you know, we were friends with so many of those other bands that were playing at the time. And I lived in the city at the time. So it was if we weren't playing, which was also kind of rare, that was the only thing. So it'd have to coincide with, you know, a holiday break or some. You know, the only time you took time off as a band, uh, yeah. you know, it was like oh, maybe around the holidays or, you know, during like final exams or something when right. you just couldn't play. <laughs> Other than that, it's 200 plus shows a year at that point trying to get it going for sure. Exactly. Yeah. You guys are also, I mean, you're, you guys have been kind of, instrumental in a lot of different things you're one of the first bands to put on your own festival as well you know with Down and Snowdown and all that what was the impetus behind you guys deciding hey let's put on our own festival um that's a really good question um I don't I I don't know I really don't know I mean with something we had talked about for a while about wanting to do something that felt like a family reunion we wanted it to be like a family reunion to have what what we could because we played some some other outdoor festivals some camping things that you know were smaller more regional things but we wanted to host one we wanted to host one for us for our fans and for all the bands that we were friends with and make one focal event where we could make it an annual gathering of those things. And it's something we talked about for a couple of years before we finally pulled it off. And and it worked and you still do it. And your example of being able to do it successfully led to so many other bands, including mine, to start putting on their own festivals, you know, and we know that, Hey, people can do it. A band can put on their own festival and curate it themselves and have the music that they really want to be a part of it. You know, whether it's your friends or bands that you've really looked up to and really enjoyed and be able to bring them in and have that's them right. do your thing, you know? And uh, I mean, so many bands now are doing it because they see that it can, you know, is a huge part of that. So, so thank you, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course. You know, and then once we did that, we're like, Oh, well, you know, could we do it in the winter time also? Right. And, you know, and so that's how we started developing the snowdown events. Uh, which ultimately turned into the throwdown events, which were the ones we started doing in the uh, first. We started doing the cruises actually. And I think it coincided with the first jam cruise. And it was, it was this, it's like the strangest way this stuff started coming about, you know, our first Mo cruise, we didn't even take the whole ship. We just took half of a ship. And then the other half of the ship was senior citizens and honeymooners. Watching and it was, the free cast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so it's interesting, you know, that, that and a lot of that, these things go back 20 years or more um, as we started, you know, started trying out some of these things. Um, and as you know, most of those models have stuck um, and been developed into uh, pretty successful models for, yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah, the destination one's a big thing now. Hopefully we'll hopefully we'll get to go. Our starts on January 10th in Jamaica. We'll see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I know January 10th seems so long from now. And <laughs> with the way it's happening, I know it's Oh my weeks. God. I know. I know. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about playing playing with members of the dead. And and you spent a you spent a minute actually playing with Phil and in Phil and Friends. Um, how did all that come about for you? It uh the the very first time was the uh the for the second year of the further festival. 
um, which I believe was 1998. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we, we got the tour. We got to be on the whole tour. And it was a, that was a huge get for us. Um, and that was all, all because of our former manager, John Topper. Like he made that happen. And, um, and I was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was thrilled. I was so, I was so incredibly excited about that. Um, and, you know, it was us. Um, and then that year, uh, it was Rat Dog, Planet Drum, Bruce Hornsby, Black Crows, Hot Tuna, Arlo Guthrie. You know, I think that's 97, actually. Okay, 97. Okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and we were we were the opener on this thing, you know. So it was a whole summer of uh, some shed, uh, you know, playing sheds, um, playing all the various amphitheaters up the East Coast through the Midwest. Got to play at Alpine and made our way out to the West Coast. Um, we were at the um, we do we do it at Red Rocks? I don't think we did that thing at Red Rocks. We were at the Greek Theater. I mean, it was like so many. Like, I mean, it was amazing. It was incredible to me as a fan. Um, but, oh no, I'm sorry. We did Shoreline. Uh, Greek theater was a different, different run. Um, but like to get to be at these venues and play with my heroes and get to be on the road with them and spend every day on tour with them for a month plus was, was a dream come true. And so I, I, it was, a, I shouldn't even say that because it was never, it was never, a, it wasn't so much a dream of mine. It was, it wasn't a reality. It wasn't something that I would like it wasn't something I aspired towards as a 16 year old in, in the crowd or an 18 year old, like watching them play. I never thought one day I'm going to be on tour with them and I'll be the opening band and Bobby and I will hang out and I'm going to play songs with like, it, it wasn't even a dream of mine. It wasn't a thing. Like I never thought that I didn't even, it was unthinkable. Right. Like, it's it a holy shit. Look where I am. And how did I get here? Kind of moment. It wasn't even a thing. Like I was supposed to go to college and be a doctor or a lawyer or something <laughs> like, you know, a nice Jewish boy would make my mother happy. And <laughs> I've heard all of this, man. We're, we're, we're yeah. yeah. <laughs> the only difference is you're upstate New York. I'm Midwest, but I am not the right. doctor. I'm not the lawyer. Yeah. I'm not the nice Jewish boy. My parents thought I would no. be. <laughs> it's it's funny my 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 wife still tells this story when she met my parents at Modown and this is like 10 years into Modown and um and she had been working as a lawyer for one of my college roommates within his firm in Atlanta at the time and I made an introduction and I said oh you know and she works with you know with my buddy Mark and she's a lawyer and my mother said we always wanted Alan to be a lawyer <laughs> There's 10,000 people at our festival at Modown. They were still still doubting it. And they're like, no, I don't know. <laughs> Mom, look around. Come on. <laughs> um, that's funny. Man. When are you going to settle down? That's right. Get a real job. <laughs> in, in 2017 at Lockin, you guys, I mean, essentially, you're the backing band for Phil and Bob to play together, right? Right. How'd that come yeah. about? What was the genesis of that one? Well, so it uh, it started with uh, it started with Pete Shapiro's idea that we should do a filmo show with Phil sitting in with our band. Um, 
And then Rob was diagnosed with cancer and of course couldn't do the gig. So then it was all Phil all the time. And as it was approaching, um, I was sort of left at, you know, to navigate, you know, between our camp and Phil's camp and try and figure out what the songs were going to be. And, and again, this is, you know, going back to what our, the comfort level of our band is, you know, um, again, like Vinny and I can go into a situation like this pretty much un, unrehearsed and right. put together a song list that day. And, you know, but the, you know, the rest of our band doesn't have the history with it. It's going to need some time to do some homework. There's a comfort level. There's, you know, all the different things. And so I'm trying to navigate those waters, but also Phil has little, he's, he's actually played a couple of Mo songs over the years when we've done some gigs together, but it's not like he's going to recall them. So I've got to figure that stuff out too. And, you know, I'm trying to do all of this, hoping that maybe there's going to be a time when we can all get together before we get on stage, you know, just all the moving pieces. Um, and then it crosses my mind, well, Bobby's going to be there too. It'd be a shame not to ask him because typically, I mean, I would, but, but then like, is it cool if I have Bobby come and play, if Phil's playing and not like, I don't like, am I, you know, is it, is the dance guard going to be too full or whatever? And meanwhile, like I've already had some conversation with the revivalist horn section about coming to play with us. And before you know it, like the list starts growing. And so like now Nikki Bloom's sitting in, the revivalists are sitting in, <laughs> Phil's doing the gig with us, but then also uh, Graham is playing with us. And, and now what was going to be one song with Bobby, I think turned into like three or four. And then as we talked through the arrangement that like went, or, you know, the, the segues and everything like that kind of went out the window. And so it was, there was a lot going on that day. Um, and we, we figured it out on the fly. <laughs> Did any rehearsal go into it? A little bit of rehearsal with Phil. And uh, we ran through the songs that we needed to with him. And that was it. Everything else was uh, just fresh on stage. So that's, that's the, that's the beauty of it now. You know, the, the, the Grateful Dead catalog, it, obviously it's so Americana, American music, but it's the modern equivalent of the real book. It is. It is. And I, I, yeah, we've, we've, I've had this conversation with people a number of times. There's a, there's something about it where it's become that, that traditional songbook for so many of us. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's almost, almost expected within, within this scene that like you can, you can walk on to a good number of those standards at this point. That's what it is. They've become standards. Yeah, man. It used to be come on and play, take the A train. Now you got to be able to come on and play birdsong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's the beauty yeah. of it though. Cause you can take that chart and you can get together and you can interpret it on the spot and everybody's interpretation is going to be different. Right. And it's, it's, it, it, it is the modern equivalent of jazz standards. It's, it's yeah, today's I, it's today's standards. All right, I, I, and I and I love that, and I love that that the music will carry on in that regard, and that like so many of us from so many different perspectives and walks of life have sort of come to it, you know, from from different angles, but that we can all come together on stage, play that music, and that's that's the common ground. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you for taking this time today. But before I let you go, I do this with all I do this with all my guests. 
just a quick enlightening round. Just try and answer them like that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm ready. First, he's cracking the knuckles. He's ready to go. <laughs> uh, first show. 1983 in Syracuse. That was the first Carrier Dome show. God, you're young. I mean, you're a freshman in high school or eighth grade, maybe. Oh, yeah. I was young. That's awesome. And and so and not to upset the lightning round, but I will they, add, they all like, go slow, dude. They all go right. slow. <laughs> but but being in upstate New York, like once you're in, like it was so easy to see them all of the time because spring, summer, fall, there was always a show somewhere in upstate right. New York. So I could I could readily see them at least three to five times a year as a teenage, like as a before I even had my driver's license, you know, because they were they were playing an hour away somewhere. Like Rochester, Syracuse, Albany, Binghamton, Saratoga, all that stuff. Yeah, man. SPAC, exactly. I went to all the SPAC shows, like, and it was great. And then once I got my driver's license, it was all over. <laughs> Game on. Uh, favorite yeah. show? Uh, to this day, like the my, the most remarkable show is seeing the Jerry Band in Moosic, Pennsylvania, the summer of 1984, I believe um phenomenal it was great like little mom and pop amusement park and probably i would say 1500 to 2000 people general admission show and one of those great sweaty garcia band shows like you know six song sets and you know just played the shit out of stuff like tangled up in blue and second that emotion and those songs and 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 the the venue was situated on a pond with paddle boats and stuff like that, you know? And so it's corrugated aluminum, like building of some kind. And during the set break, everybody opened up the doors to the building and then all the hippies were swimming in the pond and would, you know, took out the paddle boats. And a lot of them just didn't come back for the second set. They stayed out in the water and like, just yeah. to see this scene, they're like, this is great. I'm like, this is what I want to do. Like, I'm all, I'm all in. That's awesome. <laughs> um, where are we at? Uh, studio recordings or live recordings? Oh, I'm a big fan of studio recordings. Okay. What's your favorite one? Favorite dead album? It's tough. Um, I think blues for Allah. That's a, that's actually a pretty common answer that and live dead because people say live dead. Cause then it can be both. It's the studio and the right. live because it's yeah. all to put on top of each so, other yeah. and and so is europe 72 which is is probably my favorite album of theirs honestly right. and I, I listen to it all the time it's like i have a cd player in in my bus and that's all i listen to is europe 72 um fate this is you thought that was tough uh favorite non-grateful dead album that 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 desert island album for a guy with a record collection, that's a tough one. I know. See what you oh, can do. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Not anybody's favorite question that I ask. Right. And it's supposed to be a lightning round. And I Sorry, just have dude. to. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I. Uh, that's a hard pass from Al Schneer, everybody. <laughs> um, Jesus. Um, all right. I'm going to go with blood on the tracks nothing wrong with that for sure uh first job um like my first uh i was the i was the lawn boy at uh at the local nursing home perfect uh favorite color blue F 
favorite venue to play? Ooh. Um, also, oh, that's a tough one too. Um, I have, I have a lot of favorites, but um, I like the cap. Really? Yeah. Right on. You know, so do I. We were just there a couple months ago or so. First indoor shows we played in two years. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's a great place for sure. Uh, that, but my, my, my comment to actually, I just, I, I said this to Shapiro the other day. I said, there's something about that venue. I said, where it's like sort of the perfect theater, but it also feels, it feels like our clubhouse. And there's, yeah. there's I said, that's, that's a unique the unique set of qualities to sort of have yep. in a place that's that's this big and this awesome where the production is like that that stellar but it it feels like a clubhouse for sure although this last time around it would it, it I, I can totally say feel what you're saying this last time around was tough to feel like that because we're you know we're locked down right now so right you, don't, you know you're you're in your little dressing room that's four four flights up and you're not going down to the basement to see 50 people who come in to hang out. It's it's a little different right now, but it's got that for feel. sure. Yeah. Um, where were we? Let's see. Favorite venue to play. Best city for a day off. Mm. Boulder. Boulder. Uh, first car. Uh, first car was a Chevrolet Caprice Classic station wagon. <laughs> That's what my mom drove. <laughs> yep. I drove it. I drove one for years. Wood panel? No wood panel. Oh, that would have been great. <laughs> the back seat, the face is backwards. The, oh, that's that's what my mom drove all those years. Oh, <laughs> well, she was same. telling me that she hated Neil Young. Um, <laughs> uh, current car. Current car. Well, I have a I have a Volkswagen bus. That's my that's my daily driver in the the warmer months and. Um, and then I have a Acura RDX that I drive in the wintertime because I have to put the bus away. Otherwise, I would drive the bus all the time. Right, right. Uh, uh, where a book you are reading? I don't read books. Magazines? I'm, 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 sad, I'm sad to say. I, I read the news. I read a lot of news. Um, I, I'm, I've become a something of a political junkie and I lead, I read a lot of news. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of that stuff that I read every day and I spend a good hour or two every morning catching up on all of that. Any magazine subscriptions? Uh, yes, we have several. Um, and our, our most current and favorite is called bitter Southerner. It's called what? Bitter Southerner. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a great great magazine. Like it, it like it's one of those magazines where they spend a lot of time to to get it to like it, it looks great and they do really nice nice thoughtful pieces on arts, culture, politics, a little bit of everything. And last one had Michael Stipe on the cover, and I mean it's it's a great magazine. I'll have to look it up. I'm a magazine junkie. I have like 10 magazine subscriptions. So I'll have to look that one up for sure. Yeah, man. this one is great. I mean, it's a it's a coffee table magazine. It's it's beautiful. Like it looks great and they do a really good job with it. Awesome. You, you see a yeah. stack of books back here that I they've been there for years. I'm I'm not a book guy either, but I read tons and tons of magazines. And that's the funny thing. Like, you know, my the last book I got, actually, I'm looking at it. It's called Chapman Piloting. And it's it's a it's a instructional guide to sailing. And 
like those, those are the books that I like that I have. Like I'm, I'm fascinated with like how to things and instructional things. And, you know, all of my books are on like auto mechanics or sailing or like, you know, all of these, like, these are the things that like I, I tend to tend to read through. <laughs> and the last one, and this might be tough right now, but because I know things are kind of in flux for Mo, although you did just do some shows without Chuck and had some guys sit in and hopefully that went well. But uh, besides playing, this this question might not be so good with how fast things are moving right now, but besides playing, what are you most excited to have back in your life as we kind of start seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel? Um, I... I... Well, you know, it's it's funny that you should say that because I was going to say, say just just gathering uh, with with gathering with friends and family had been exactly. or has been has been the thing that I was sort of most most excited about. You know, even as recently as Thanksgiving. You know, this this Thanksgiving felt less guarded than last Thanksgiving, and it felt right. like we were moving in the right direction until until yesterday or the day before and all of a sudden it feels like the beginning of the pandemic again and it's like before you know it like you know nba is going to like pull up stakes and they're going to shut down march madness again and it's like all that kind of all those um all those all those pieces fell like very quickly at the same time and i see like nhl cancer it's like it's funny i look to sports kind of as like our as our bellwether for all of this, but it's, it's happening. And, you know, NFL is trying really, really hard to get the season. If we don't test them, we won't know they have it. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. Oh, we'll just we'll postpone for a couple of days and they'll be fine. And oh, just put in your third string quarterback. And- <laughs> now we're just hoping that uh, watching the sports, like you say, hoping that uh, the shows go on, you know, everything's in flux again. Right. Right. And that's the thing. And doing, doing what we do, you know, it's like you said, you know, you've got a show, you know, second week of January and yeah. that just seems like forever from now. And I got and, shows next week, right. in your where you are, I got shows next week in New York with everything right. going on in New York. Are they going to happen? Right. guess we'll see. Well, thank you for indulging us folks. As we go off on a tangent, we could probably go on yeah. an hour on this stuff with two guys who read the news all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, man, I really, this has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I Likewise. so appreciate you taking the time to do this today. And uh, good luck to you guys getting back out there. All our best for Chuck to have a good recovery and, and, and see Mo on the road playing gigs again one day soon, the way that they are accustomed to doing it. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you on the road, uh, hopefully in a couple months when you, when you come to our hometown. For sure, man. Hopefully that will all still be happening. That is Al Schneer from Mo, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for staying with me today, pal. Take care. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I would like to thank Al Schneer and Jonathan Sherrod for being here today. And I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats, The Clean Store, and Beth Koritz at yourclarity.coach. And of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out over 70 music-related podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week. Or you can show your love with a one-time contribution. And please remember that a portion of the proceeds will go to the Rex Foundation. 
Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. We're going to take a moment off for the holidays, but I will be back in January when we're entering our second year already, and I'll have episode 27 for you. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. With the way things are trending and all the holiday gatherings, it's even more vital to take care of yourselves, and just as importantly, think about those around you. Happy Holidays! And thanks for being here. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.